This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We also did learn uh, a bunch new, uh, or maybe more, if you will, on really the tough spot we are once again when it comes to COVID-19. We did have uh, Pfizer CEO saying that the company may know by the end of October whether or not its vaccine is effective. Germany looking at closing restaurants, prohibiting large events as well. Uh, governments across Europe really looking to fight back those rising infections and fatalities that they're seeing, and they're trying to avoid those full-scale lockdowns. And in keeping with that, Kaylee, I think safe to say one of the headlines that stayed with us big time last week had to do with Chicago putting into place a curfew because of the virus. That was a big deal. Yeah, non-essential businesses having to close down at least through the end of next week at a certain time, limiting gatherings to a max of six people. But Chicago is one of the places, the mayor over there, Lori Lightfoot, saying cases are going up in every single zip code. So you kind of got to do what you got to do to get those numbers down. Well, we've got um, a perspective on Chicago. Dr. William Yates, founder and owner of Yates Enterprises, is back with us. He's a trauma surgeon, and he joins us on the phone in Chicago. Dr. Yates, nice to have you here with Kaylee and myself. Um, First of all, hi, what's Chicago like? Tell us what Chicago's like right now. Well, we'll start with the weather. Not good. I heard the weather (laughs) in New York. It's a lot better. It's it's snowing here, so that's one. (laughs) Okay, so... Number two, as far as the COVID situation, as I I heard on the intro, Mayor Lightfoot has enacted a curfew where at 10 p.m. restaurants have to close, the last drinks at 9 p.m. And it's kind of, it looks, downtown looks like a ghost town, and Hmm. my office is in downtown, so the numbers are rising at an exponential rate, and no one really seems to have a good handle on why or what the cause is. So it looks like a ghost town. To, you know, be quite frank with you. Dr. Yates, Carol and I were talking on this program yesterday about the concept of pandemic fatigue, and people are just tired of staying at home. They're tired of having to abide by these restrictions. And it's kind of a vicious circle where if you don't want to stay at home, you go out, you let your guard down, then cases pick up. Do you think that maybe that phenomenon may be part of this? I would say without a doubt. Um, Cabin fever, uh, COVID-19 fatigue, all the same things. People are just tired of staying indoors. They're going outside. And a lot of young people just think they're invincible. Um, and it, it doesn't become real unless you know somebody who has COVID. So a lot of people still think that this is some imaginary disease because they don't know anybody with COVID. So they go around and disregard all the admonitions that are out there. And that's what I think is really sparking things up. And, and the other things are bars. You know, bars, you know, once this cabin fever started, people started hitting the bar scene hard. And, you know, at a bar scene, that's like the perfect uh, Petri dish for COVID-19 spread. Well, Dr. Yates, let's talk a little bit more about Chicago. You said you, you guys don't know why these numbers are rising. And I'm just looking at, I think, one of the latest reports. And we're talking uh, about 4,000 new confirmed cases uh, in Chicago, 46 additional deaths reported, or maybe it's in the state of Illinois completely. Um, why do you think the numbers are rising? Is it because the bars have been opened? Is it because of pandemic fatigue? Is it because it's getting colder? What is it? Well, I think it's uh, a lot of the above. I think more than anything, it's the, the cabin fever fatigue where 
people are getting out, and again, it's not personal. And in medicine, it's well known, if things aren't personal, they aren't true. So it's hard for people to live and see things on TV that aren't real to them. So they don't wear masks, they don't social distance, uh, they go to bars because, you know, young people do things, take high-risk behavior, and it's just spreading like wildfire. And it's getting cold, so it's not many things for people to do. When it was warm outside, they had to stay inside, so now it's cold. So you, you'd think the opposite would happen, but it's going the opposite way. People are going more outside to have fun. So I think it's those soft reasons that are really bringing the numbers up here. And Lori Lightfoot, I mean, I think she's very smart. I mean, it's really economically like taking a, you know, a blow below the belt to a lot of restaurants. But mm-hmm. for the common good, I think it's a good idea that we get a handle on this right away. I'm thinking because you grew up on the south side of Chicago, are you concerned about those more vulnerable populations once again? Especially now we're seeing, I think, in some of the stories that it's not just younger people. Once again, it's older people who are being targeted. But again, are you worried about those more vulnerable populations? Well, you always have to be because always they're going to be the, the, the underserved population, again, is a great Petri dish for COVID. They have no access to health care. They can't. Uh, stay at home and work from home because most people who are from more poverty-stricken areas work in the service industry, so they have to show up. So anytime you see any numbers with COVID, you're going to see the Hispanic population and the African-American population kind of lead the pack with cases for that reason, mainly because social distancing, since you have extended family at home, it's just not like one family that lives in a three-story house. You have like two or three families in, in one apartment, and you're in the service industry, and you can't stay home and Zoom all day. All those things add up, not to mention that comorbidities, which we all know makes it worse, which are more prevalent in that population. Let's stick with our conversation about the virus. There's headlines crossing the Bloomberg Terminal right now from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Carol, more places. I'm not allowed to go. California added to the travel advisory list. Massachusetts, uh, non-essential travel to and from is discouraged. These restrictions just keep on coming. So I want to bring back in Dr. William Yates. He is a trauma surgeon. He's also founder of Yates Enterprises. He's on the phone with us from Chicago. Dr. Yates, I want to ask you about something. Carol and I were just discussing the White House's approach to the virus and Mark Meadows saying they can't control it. They just have to focus on mitigating it afterwards. Is is that the right approach? Well, I I guess they can't control it, number one, because they didn't try to control it the the appropriate way. Um, No, that's not the right approach. I mean, uh, science always wins, as history has told us. Um, In the beginning, if we had followed normal protocol or scientific protocol that was given to the government by the experts, I don't think we'd be in this predicament. The new thing that the White House has put out is this herd immunity. I don't know if you are going to discuss this at all, but it's kind of the same thing. Herd Mm -hmm. immunity means just let the virus take its course and some basically survival of the fittest. Whoever lives, lives. It's just like, you know, one big apocalypse. And that's kind of what the White House has been promoting as well. A lot of people think that's a great idea, that it'll get rid of the weak and only the strong will survive and we'll be done with it. And, of course, most people who can really think through it think that's a terrible idea. Well, we, we, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, just what's the alternative? What, if we could do it your way, how would we do it? Well, my way would be, as the, the book says, um, one, work as hard as you can to produce a vaccine. 
Now, producing a vaccine isn't going to be a miracle cure because the numbers are now showing that the American population are, are losing faith in taking the vaccine. From, you know, maybe a month ago, 70% of people said they take it. Now, less than 40% said they'll take the vaccine. So that's already producing a problem. But until th that vaccine is developed or we have adequate treatment, I think each state, especially the troublesome states, should mandate that you have to wear a mask six feet apart, do what you have to do with the restaurants. Unfortunately, economically, you're going to have to support a lot of people as well. Testing is a big deal, you know, frequent testing, especially of, you know, of children or people that are, you know, essential workers and uh, contact tracing as well. But and, and sanitation, you know, all those things that Dr. Fauci says every day. I think uh, as humans, everybody is always talking about violation of my rights and so forth and so on. And the people who are talking about their rights have no idea about anything in the Constitution because there, there are no rights about mask wearing in the Constitution. <laughs> no, that's, so, that's fair to say. I, if I could just go back to herd um, immunity. I mean, my understanding, uh -huh. Dr. Yates, is that if we did something like that, you would we have to be comfortable with a lot more people dying. Yes, we would have, some people say the numbers would be in the thousands, some say in the millions, and that's why people who are compassionate and are scientists say it's unethical. Why would you risk that many lives just to get herd immunity? That's, those are the kind of things that happened, you know, in the era before we had antibiotics. I mean, in, you know, like Civil War days or, you know, 16th century. Right. That's how, that's how diseases were cured, herd immunity. You either survived or you didn't. But we've evolved since then, so I, I don't think that's a, a very prudent way at all because nobody wants to risk themselves or their loved one or anyone else they don't know for some, I think, ridiculous uh, reason like that. All right. Going to leave it there. Dr. Yates, thank you, as always. Really appreciate your time. You've been one of our go-to voices uh, on the pandemic uh, since uh, the spring, so we really appreciate it. Dr. William Yates, founder and owner of Yates Enterprises, on the phone from Chicago. Our conversation happening, Kaylee, as we see another headline. France reporting 523 coronavirus deaths. It is the most since April 22nd. So we're going back to, in many ways, those levels that we saw back in the spring. Yeah, and not just in France. In many cases, mm -hmm. uh, in many countries around Europe, in cases in Germany, for example, uh, at a record. And it's one of those things that makes you question, is this going to be a repeat of March where we're just six weeks behind Europe? Yeah, exactly. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. It's a business that its CEO initially thought would see dark days because of COVID-19. And then, well, things kind of changed big time in a good way. Let's get into this story on Rad Power Bikes. I just kind of love the name. Bloomberg News Global Business Reporter Ira Boudway with us on the phone in New Jersey, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the phone in Brooklyn. I feel like we have so many of these kinds of stories, Joel, where initially business thought, okay, it's the end for us. And then all of a sudden it was like, uh, not so fast. And, and even more so uh, with this one, because they, they were kind of looking at it as, you know, a, a, a segment of the bicycle industry. We're talking about e-bikes in general mm -hmm. here that has always been viewed by cyclists as sort of, uh, you know, a, a segment not to be discussed. Let's <laughs> call it that. And boy, you know, at the beginning, the, the CEO of Rad here that we that Ira spoke with thought it was going to be, you know, maybe like potential sort of like dark days, nail in the coffin kind of territory. And then all of a sudden, here we are months later, and these bikes have become hugely popular among a commuting set. Uh, 
Um, and, and I think it really speaks to the way that certain products can find a new relevance yeah. uh, because of uh, the reality that we all face here in the pandemic. What kind of demand has Rad seen for their e-bikes, Ira? Uh, well, they were already growing like gangbusters. So they really came online in 2015, and they were doubling year over year. So last year they were at about $100 million in revenue, which already made them the biggest brand in a, in a relatively small market. And, and they uh, suddenly started to triple. <laughs> um, in April of this year and haven't seen that cool off. But that's actually in line with, I mean, they are hotter than most, but if you look at the e-bike market as a whole, you know, last year it was a little less than $400 million in just in terms of bike shops and big box stores. And, and um, I'm sorry, this year it's already close to $400 million. Last year for the whole year it was it was less than $250 million. So wow. it's more than doubling. So it's, it's one of those many, many outdoor things that has gotten very hot because of the pandemic. Okay, Ira, I just need to be upfront about this. I am not a bike fan. I live in Manhattan. I have been in How many can cabs. Not be a bike I fan? have been in so many cabs <laughs> that have come within seconds of hitting a cyclist. I have no desire to mm-hmm. be that cyclist. Say I want to right. dabble, though. How much would one of these things cost me? Uh, you can get a Rad Power e-bike delivered to your house for about $1,000. And this is their whole, this is why they're so successful is they have come in well under the, a lot of the bike shop brands by delivering directly to you, uh, skipping all the retail markups and depending on who you ask by using kind of not as high quality parts on the bike. <laughs> um, hmm. And they've, but that was their goal to make a mid price kind of good enough um, quality bike uh, that um, people would get people into this market. Because really, a lot of people have been shy about it because these things can cost eight eight grand. <laughs> Many of them are three, four thousand dollars. So you can get one of their entry level ones for a thousand dollars. They have others that are twelve hundred. The one I tried out, which is a big cargo bike, is about seventeen hundred. Um, and they the value the idea is that this can do a lot of things that your car might do now. You know, depending on where you live, you can grocery shop with it. You could carry kids on it. You can commute to work on it. So you know, it's actually maybe a saving you money uh, if you use it right. And how does this uh, segment, uh, how, how does it fare elsewhere in the world? Because it, it's catching fire here, but um, internationally, uh, other countries have, or, or continents even have viewed, diff- viewed e-bikes differently than we have in America. Yeah, we're, we, the world looks at us as kind of weird, actually, on this, <laughs> because e-bikes are, are just kind of a curiosity here that's just now beginning to become kind of a part of the mainstream consciousness. If you look at China, the best estimate is there's more than 270 million used every day. Uh, Europe, you're talking about maybe 10 million. Uh, and in the United States, there's maybe a million. So, uh, you know, and RAD itself has um, says there's more than 100,000 of theirs on the road worldwide. So the scale in, in North America is just, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there, but it's a lot of barriers. And one of the biggest ones is uh, what you mentioned, safety. People need to feel safe and the roadways need to be safe before they will really start to use these every day to go to the store, go to the mall, go to work, whatever it may be. And so it's kind of a chicken and egg problem right now. You've got to get people to buy them so that they have them, so that they're advocating for the roadways that they need. Um, but um, but that is, you know, what they think maybe is beginning to happen, that there's enough people who tried these out maybe because their vacation got canceled and they were looking for a way to get out of the house, you know, in March and April. Right. And then they start they start using it for a trip to, home, to the grocery store. Then they think maybe I could go to work on this. And then maybe they start, you know, advocating for bike paths and, and uh, 
changing their habits. So that's that's kind of the hope, at least among the industry. Ira, it's a great company story, small business story. It's also the guy behind it. You know, you talk about Mike, um, you know, who created this company, but he did his first e-bike when he was like 15 years old. I mean, he sounds like an interesting character and an entrepreneur, yeah. inventor. Yeah, yeah. He's from the Humboldt County, California, and was just kind of a kid who grew up kind of a little bit off the grid and was a tinkerer, and he wanted to get himself to school was the original impetus for this. So he took like a 40-pound specialized bike, uh, or sorry, a 40-pound lead-acid battery, put it on a specialized mountain bike, and built it. That was the first one, you know, uh, and it just kind of grew from there. First, it was like a, a bespoke business. This guy's name is Mike Radenbaugh, by the way, which is where the name comes from, but they... Um, it was a business they did one-offs. You know, people would ask them, hey, could you make me one like that? And then they realized over time that everybody wanted roughly the same thing. They wanted it not to cost too much. They wanted it to carry a certain amount of weight, be easy to ride. And, and so they, they built one called the Rad Runner, which is sort of their, their biggest, mo- their most popular model that, that sort of checked all those boxes and, and started selling them online. Okay, so I got to ask about your test drive. Can you talk to us <laughs> yeah. about uh, your experience on the bike, Ira? Well, and I'd also like to know yeah. how long it took you to build this thing. Please, please yeah, give us well, some that color is, on that. <laughs> that is the big, one of the big frictions for them because they took inspiration from like Warby Parker and, and uh, Casper, but you get a mattress or glasses delivered to you, you know, direct consumer online. You basically, you put it on your bed or on your face and you, you don't think about it again. This is a little more complicated. This big box comes... You've got to do some assembly. A lot of it's done. They actually put them all together in uh, their factories, mostly in China, and then they disassemble enough to get it into a box, like the front tire, the handlebars, some of the pedals. Some of the stuff's not on, and you've got to do a fair amount of assembly when it comes, and they just they send instructions. Um, and that was tricky. Honestly, I wish I'd have had more help and support, and that's what they're trying to do is build a bigger support network of bike shops and vans that will come to your house and their own own service that will come to your house and do the assembly and make sure it's set to go because it does need some assembly and maintenance. Right. But I did manage after about a few hours, uh, you know, I spent the better part of a day putting it together. Um, and that's partly because I'm not, a, you know, that bike right. literate. Right. I haven't done a bike in a long time. And, um, but I got it up and running and confident enough in it to like put my kids on the back and, um, they liked it? It was a lot of fun. <laughs> All yeah, right. they loved it. I mean, they were, I, I didn't wind up, so they sent me their big rad wagon, which is, the, you know, the, the one that can put two kids on the back. It's a huge bike, and I ultimately decided not to because it was so big, but my kids really wanted to. Well, they loved it. I'm just going to tell everybody, check it out uh, on Bloomberg.com because it's a fun read, uh, this story. But as we said, thanks to uh, Ira Boudouet of Bloomberg News along with Joel Weber. This is Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Bloomberg Business Week on this Tuesday. Carol Masser along with Kaylee Lines. And Kaylee, man, I saw this reading in this morning. And this is certainly one of our top business stories, one of our top deal stories. And it's kind of a top disruptive story as well. Talking about AMD buying Xilinx for $35 billion. It's a stock deal. Yeah, and it's a, it's a big stock deal. And it's, it's yet another chip deal, Carol. I mean, we've seen so many of these this year. I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, what is driving this need for consolidation in the chipmaker space? Well, we're going to find out because someone who's been really busy tracking all of the comings and goings and all these deals is Ian King. He is our go-to person when it comes to anything in the chip space. He's U.S. Semiconductor and Networking Reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone in San Francisco. And Ian, I feel like in the last couple of months, I've said woa to you a couple of times. This is a massive deal. 
It, it certainly is, yes. And it's something that, you know, on any number of levels wouldn't have been imaginable a fairly recent amount of time ago. Obviously, the ability of AMD to fund something like this in stock, as Kaylee just alluded to, is, is uh, you know, is a very new and, and almost shocking phenomenon and just a sign of just how far this company has come. Well, and talk to us about the significance of it being a stock deal, because I know when there were first murmurs that this acquisition might be happening, there was concerns about leverage. Does that kind of allay all of those fears? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you know, you've nailed it. I mean, it, investors have basically PTSD with AMD when it comes to debt. Um, you'll remember at its, at its previous peak back in the mid sort of 2000s, it, it went out and bought ATI, did that deal for cash and ended up with a, you know, a, a real debt burden that it just couldn't get its way out of and that hurt it in terms of its, you know, the massive expenditures that you need to invest in chip making technology and it just couldn't keep up and fell further and further behind Intel. Investors did not want to see that happen again and uh, obviously Lisa Su, the CEO, has managed to negotiate uh, the first hurdle there. First of all, I just love this company because it's a major tech company and it's run by a woman. So it's just kind of cool. And it's a rarity, I feel like, uh, Ian. First but, ever time in the chip, in the, in the industry's history. So, yeah, that's definitely worthy of note. It's remarkable. And I feel like, listen, she's shaking things up. Is this all about going after Intel? What is, what is the significance of this deal specifically? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, on one level it is because Intel is bought Altera a few years ago. Altera mm-hmm. is basically a, a mirror image of Xilinx, so yes. Mm-hmm. But on another level, Lisa is saying, look, I, I'm not. this is not going to be creating magical products. This is me, in a very practical way, getting high-margin revenue that's going to mm-hmm. give me the cash flow, that's going to give me new markets, that's going to keep me... That, you know, it's basically spreading my bet. And she's portrayed it in a, in a much more practical way than Intel tried to sell the Altera bit deal a few years ago. And, and analysts have not been happy with what Intel has done with Altera. So she's approaching things in a very different way. And it seems at least that she's taking a different approach and, and that people like it. Well, and part of this, too, is about building up, scaling up in when it comes to data centers specifically. Can you just talk to us about the importance of those data center chips in particular? Yeah, I mean, this is a very much a pull thing. I mean, if you are Google, if you're AWS, if you're Facebook, you've just flooded with data, literally more data than you can make sense out of. One of the things that they're trying to do with that data is to use artificial intelligence. One of the ways that you can accelerate some of these workloads is by getting them off the main processor that AMD or Intel supply and using what's called an FPGA, which is what Xilinx produces, to, to do parts of that to accelerate it and make that burden easier. So... That's what's going on here, but it's still very early days. Xilinx is making really, really fast progress into the data center as a, as a portion of its business, but it's still only about 14% of its total revenue. You know, Ian, what do you make just this year alone? I think, was it September that we talked about NVIDIA buying SoftBank Group's chip division arm? That was a $40 yep. billion dollar deal. I do feel yep. like we're kind of getting to a new world order when it comes to the chip space. And I think China's got to be watching, kind of salivating a little bit. They need all these chips, right? And they're still trying to really kind of develop that space, but they need that access. Yeah, I mean, you raise a couple of extremely important points here. I mean, the... You know, the industry has come together at an unprecedented level, and it's almost a question of who's left. Xilinx was arguably one of the few 
that was left and it's not simply been a factor of you know the bets getting bigger and bigger for this industry the customer base is more consolidated supplying itself so you have to have the scale in order to compete at the same time this deal is going to have to go through a, a you know protracted and, and thorny um you know regulatory examination and, and china has got to be one of the places where i think people are concerned about how quickly if at all it will get through that approval process same mm-hmm. thing for nvidia and that's geopolitics has inserted itself into this business as well. Right. Sammy's just getting yanked around as that battle between the U.S. and China, that tech cold war that so many people call it, uh, has continued on. Ian, I want to talk about AMD. They did report results uh, yes, this morning as well. Part of obviously got overshadowed by this deal. But in the results, they said something very different from Intel, saying demand for data center chips remains strong. They also gave a really strong forecast for the fourth quarter. What's working for AMD that isn't working for Intel right now? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the big debate around what Intel said a week ago. They, you know, they the numbers were okay, but they said, oh, you know, the data center is getting weaker. Companies aren't buying data center chips. They're, they've got too much inventory. This is a, a COVID-related thing. And people were like, well, I'm not so sure about that. This is probably AMD eating your lunch a little bit. <laughs> and then Lisa Su came along today and said, oh, you know, the data center demand is fine, which implies that those people who didn't believe Bob Swan over at Intel were perhaps right. And certainly, you know, was not good news if you're, a, if you're an Intel supporter. And um, that, you know, if AMD is going up, I mean, it's, it's you know, one, one gains and, and, and the other loses. It's as simple as that for those businesses right now. Hey, 20 seconds left here. Are there any other deals, mega deals out there to be had? Just quickly. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's, it's the, the biggest question, I think, is how these deals are going to get through that approval process. I think that's yeah. the biggest thing on everybody's mind right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's certainly kept you busy and uh, given us great reasons to check in with you again, which is always a good thing. Ian King, thank you so much. U.S. Semiconductor Networking Reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in San Francisco. I mean, man, we've seen a fair amount of deal activity, but so much, I feel like, Kaylee, in the chip space this year. Over $100 billion worth of mergers. I mean, talk about consolidation. All these chip companies are getting together, but it's a fair question. How many of them are really left to combine? Yeah, exactly. Now it's all about execution. All right, this is Bloomberg. In this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week's Small Business Survival Guide, this might catch you off guard. And it's once again about someone pivoting to stay alive during the virus and in the process really shaking up an industry. Let's get into it with Bloomberg News Editor Dimitra Kessaniti. She's on the phone in New York City along with Adela Colvin, owner of Lola Bean Yarn Company. She joins us on the phone from Georgia. Dimitra, this is a story. Uh, it's just the kind I love. And it's just such a story that is in kind of the true Business Week vein. Uh, yeah, it's a great story. It was brought to us by a freelancer named Lauren Feldman, and it's um, a story about, you know, really being true to yourself in your business and not shying away from who you are. You know, the yarn industry has been traditionally quite white and not very diverse, and over the years, attempts to make it more diverse, you know, um, certainly have taken off. But Adela faced a very unique situation from an experience she had once when she went into a store um, on her own for the first time, and then a whole process that she went through to a point where she realized she had to really own sort of who she is and what she wants to do. So I'll, I'll throw it to Adela to tell us about the moment when she decided to um, put Lola, her daughter, on the label of her business 
and really be very honest about I am a black woman running this business and this is who I am. And it doesn't mean that my business is any less or any different than any other great yarn business out there. Hi, Adela. Hi. <laughs> Hi, how are you? So tell us, there was a moment you had a business before Lola Beans and you deliberately didn't want people to associate it as a black owned business. And then your daughter was born. Absolutely. And tell us, um, tell us about the change that you experienced then. Well, prior to, you know, her being born, I did have a business and I did not put myself out there into the forefront because um, I felt that if people were to see my face and see that I was a black woman, that they would think that the services I had to offer were inadequate, less than um, or not worse uh, what they actually are, you know, because I'm a black woman and how black people are perceived. Um, and it was, you know, once I had my daughter looking at her and, and wanting to make sure that I instill, you know, a sense of self, a sense of pride, um, you know, just let her know that, you know, she is beautiful, she is worthy. And I wanted to let the rest of the world know that. And, and that's, that's how the logo was birthed. <laughs> And it was received. I mean, you, you shared with us. Um, tell us a little bit about just uh, the reception that you got, you know, when, when that happened, after that happened. Uh, people that came to you and reacted to realizing your business was a black-owned business. Um, the reception was really, really warm. Uh, people uh, took to it right away, more specifically black makers um, and crafters and other non-white folks in our industry would approach me about how beautiful it was. And, um, you know, I'd have people coming, coming up to me in tears. We waited so long, you know, to see uh, a black face for us to be represented. And you have no idea how this little logo, you know, has, has changed things for us. And, is, and, and you're starting to see um, more and more black crafters uh, come out into the forefront. It, it was almost like, the 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 middle bat signal like hey i'm here you know right. you can all come out and <laughs> and it's just you know now everybody everybody knows b when they see the logo they they know lola b <laughs> Uh, you mentioned, you know, Black-owned businesses and the support. I feel like a lot of those businesses have seen there's been a real drive to support Black-owned businesses just as a result of, you know, the kind of reckoning we're having in the year 2020. How has that been for you? How has that changed uh, your business? It has changed it dramatically. Um, I initially had one wholesale account in Lincoln, Nebraska, and jumped up to something like over 30. Um, I've had to move my family, you know, out of the house we were in into a bigger house and use this house for work. Uh, it can be a little overwhelming, especially when, you know, you're not used to doing that kind of volume. You're not used to that kind of attention and also trying to figure out who's who, who is genuinely there to support you and wants to see you succeed or who's just trying to capitalize, you know, off of this, this movement in this moment. What's your advice? Just got about 40 seconds here, uh, Adela, in terms of, you know, black business owners, entrepreneurs out there. It can be tough to try and get a business going. What would be, you know, a piece of advice to them just quickly? Uh, don't give up. Hmm. Stay true to yourself. And if they won't let you sit at the table, make your own. 
Good advice. Really good advice. Um, thank you so much, and we wish you um, well. Adela Colvin, owner of Lola Bean Yarn Company, on the phone from Georgia, along with our Bloomberg News editor, Demetra Kessanides, on the phone in New York City. And Kaylee, we've had so many different conversations here on uh, Bloomberg Business Week just about the inability for minority business owners mm-hmm. to access capital um, and support in terms of getting a business off the ground. So it's great to see uh, the progress she has made. Yeah, and I would encourage everyone to read the story because it also goes into the those who have helped her mm-hmm. along the way. And it's not just a story of women helping women. It's a story of three black women helping each other. And it's it's a really great way. I would encourage everyone, everyone the, to check it out. The community support, the role of social media, like it all just has um, certainly a role in this. So be sure to go to uh, Bloomberg.com and check out that story on Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Tuesday. Kaylee Lines, Carol Masser, and we are Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, Carol, we're just about 11 minutes away from the closing bell. A fresh headline for the markets to digest with a few minutes left of trading. President Trump, he's speaking at a rally in Michigan right now, saying that it's Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, that won't approve a stimulus package. Stimulus, just one thing for this market to worry about. But of course, we are a week out from that presidential election. Joining us now on the phone from Austin, Texas, is Brian Yakman. He's the chief investment officer over at YCG Investments. Brian, You say investors are overly focused on the election. I guess my question to you is, why shouldn't they be? (laughs) Well, you know, I I think that because the truth is, is that even if you knew the election outcome in advance, you still won't know how to position yourself. So when you look at the last election and, you know, parties aside, consensus was that if Trump was elected, markets were going to crash. And they, they, he was a surprise victory, and he and, and the markets did crash in the pre-market. Right. But interestingly, even if you had tomorrow's newspaper before everyone else, by the time the market closed, the markets reacted counter to what the consensus had predicted and ended mm-hmm. up going up. And so furthermore, like right now, I look at it, there was just a recent report coming out from J.P. Morgan, and it was a dramatic reversal because it had been they were saying, hey, look, a blue sweep is going to be the most beneficial outcome from the election. And now in a huge reversal, they're saying, actually, no, if Trump wins in an orderly way, that's the most favorable outcome for equities. And so I guess my point is, who knows? But how the markets react, I still think is unpredictable. And so we just don't pick stocks based on who wins the election. We just think the best approach is to own global champions that we think will yield great results in multiple scenarios. Well, Brian, you are, um, and i got to say, you know, your fund, uh, the YCG Enhanced Fund, you guys are great at, at stock picking. It's in the 95th percentile over the past five years. You guys have returned nearly 13% on average uh, annually, according to our Bloomberg data. And you've got some, you know, very well-known brands, household names, whether it's MasterCard, Nike, you know, among your top holdings. Tell us a little bit about some of the stocks you're maybe potentially either adding to the position or you think investors should, you know, take a look at, especially at the current price? Well, 
I, you know, as you mentioned that, just because today they reported, I guess I'll bring up MSCI. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's certainly, it, it's price is not cheap. It's and, a top holding, right? We, it, it is a top holding. And what, when I say it's not cheap, it's not cheap from just a PE multiple basis. But recognize that the value of a stock, it, it's not all about PEs and that all PEs are created equally. This is a business that requires very little uh, capital reinvestment, and yet it still continues to grow. Um, you know, there it's a subscription business primarily, and I think that's missed uh, that that they they have massive retention, like 95% retention. And whereas almost all businesses are deflationary over time because of competition, innovation, it drives down pricing after you adjust for inflation. Mm-hmm. In their case, they can just continually raise prices year after year because it's such a resilient, uh, desirable franchise. So just to make sure that your listeners follow what I'm saying, is MSCI provides international indices or benchmarks. It's the way that the markets communicate about benchmarking performance. So like the S&P, the Dow Jones. And you look at the Dow, I mean, the Dow's over 100 years old. It's probably the most poorly constructed index out there. <laughs> right. Yet it's still quoted daily and like by minute. <laughs> and and so I guess what I'm saying is the index business is very, it's a powerful, resilient business, difficult to disrupt. You and I could say, let's go create an identical index to all the MSCI indices, and nobody would pay attention to our indices. And that gives them pricing power and the ability to keep raising prices, and they have a long runway and a huge tailwind at their back. And they just reported today fantastic numbers, and we believe they'll continue to be uh, you know, that'll be materially larger many years from now. It's so true. And Kaylee, I know you probably do this in your, you know, you have in your job on Bloomberg TV, and I certainly, whether it's the emerging markets, they have the developed markets, I often go to them when I want to compare markets around the world. And if you look at the FA page on the Bloomberg that just kind of breaks down their balance sheet, I mean, Brian, this is the MSCI. I mean, they have pretty consistent earnings growth, pretty consistent revenues growth. And like you said, that subscription-based model gives that kind of company visibility. And nothing about the election has anything to do with their Correct. results, right? Correct. <laughs> the, exactly. This will keep powering forward. And, and so I take comfort. And um, I personally sleep well at night just knowing that we own those kinds of companies. The other thing I'd point out is, you know, I, I think the market's being overly focused on COVID winners, right? And so, mm. which votes the prices up. And some of the biggest winners from the crisis are not necessarily what I consider the usual suspects. Right. Like you look at the recent Netflix results, right? Yeah. And they likely pulled forward demand. Um, but we think that the actual winners are sometimes the ones that are less suspecting, but they're such dominant companies with a very bright future mm-hmm. that the competitors got hit hard. Um, so I'm thinking of Nike right now, another uh, big holding of ours, and they initially got hit, of course, like everybody else. Uh, but in this process, they've now got more bargaining power over all the distributors, like the likes right. of Foot Locker, et cetera. They're uh, direct-to-consumer channels growing. And here's a company that basically dominates a global belief network. They've connected their brand to celebrity athletes by spending billions of dollars. They have the most resources to continue to do that. And as the world continues to uh, grow its wealth, that network just becomes stronger day by day as billions are added to the middle class. And so they have built-in pricing power to remain as a reliable status signal. And lots of growth runway in China. Brian, I want to ask you quickly, in just about 10 minutes' time, we're going to get results from Microsoft, which I notice is one of your holdings. Can you just give me the investment thesis for that name? Yeah, sure. So with Microsoft, 
I I'm just got about 45 like a, seconds, <laughs> just so that you're talking. Okay, yeah, no, thanks. So I think of them as almost like a, a, a tax on business. They've, they've cleverly positioned themselves to become a, a toll taker. Basically, it's a toll road over which all businesses must pass. Hmm. And th- that gives them pricing power again in the, the subscription side. There's a lot of high switching costs. We're very laser-focused on pricing power and a long runway for growth, conservatively capitalized. Microsoft's numbers are clean versus most of the other, um, well, almost all their stocks out there. They're clean numbers, clean cash flow. And I still think it's actually very reasonably priced given the, the future we see there. Yeah, and we definitely have seen uh, the company kind of recreated under Satya Nadella, so uh, we're going to get into it. Uh, Microsoft shares, by the way, up 35% so far in 2020. Brian Yakman, always good to talk names with you. Chief Investment Officer at YCG Investments, uh, joining us on the phone from Austin, Texas. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.